very much, Leslie. Can I first acknowledge the traditional owners, the lands we're meeting on today, and pay my respect to elders past and present, uh, and commit myself as a member of the Albanese government to the implementation in full of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, Louise, thank you very much for your gen generosity with the Australian Scholarships Foundation. Beth, thank you for your leadership. Uh, Leslie, thank you for our long friendship and your uh, exemplar role in the sector in building a, a more connected Australia. Uh, and thank you all of you for uh, being out here. It is uh, pretty extraordinary to be in a room full of humans. Uh, one of those experiences that uh, we missed a lot over the last couple of years, no more so than here in Melbourne. Uh, so it's just a delight to be here in person to uh, have this conversation. I wanted to talk today about two big problems in society and one cause that links them together. Uh, the two challenges are disconnection and declining productivity. And the problem, I think, has to do with our use of mobile technology. And then I'll weave back in again at the end to some of what we're doing as a government. But given that we have this unique room full of people in the charity sector and in the corporate sector, I figured that uniting the two problems that stand your industries might be the way to go today. So in the charity sector, we've had a, a, a lousy decade uh, over the last, or lousy generation when it's come to the strength of the community. Over the past generation, Australians have been less likely to join organised groups. We've seen a decline in membership of Scouts, Guides, Rotary, Lions and the RSL. If you ask people, are they an active member of any organisation, they're less likely to say yes now than they were a decade ago. Whether that's a political organisation, a social organisation uh, or a sporting organisation. Australians have been, become less likely to volunteer. Volunteering was trending down before COVID, but the decline accelerated when COVID hit. Australians are less likely to play organised sport. Uh, as I mentioned before, that when I worked with Robert Putnam in the early 2000s, he just brought out his book, Bowling Alone. And I can report to you that Australians are less likely to be 10-pin bowling or lawn bowling than we were at the start of the millennium. We're less likely to be involved in a religious community, which doesn't just have theological implications, but it matters in terms of our social engagement. Because one of the things religious communities do remarkably well is getting people out to volunteer for other causes and to give money to the back to their local community. Australians are much less likely to be joining a union. Uh, in the early 1980s, half the workforce was in a union. Now that number is down to around one in eight workers. Uh, we've seen a decline too in informal socialising. When Nick Terrell and I wrote, reconnected a couple of years ago, we refielded a survey that had been done which asked Australians how many close friends they had, with whom they could share a confidence. And the typical Australian in the mid-1980s said, oh, I've got about nine close friends. When we refielded that survey, we found that number had fallen to five. That is, that Australians' interpersonal networks had almost halved. The survey asked too, how many neighbours are there in this area on whom you could drop in on uninvited? And that number dropped from 10 to 5 over the same period. So over the period since Neighbours the TV show hit the screens, uh, we have been 
uh, half as likely to know one of our local neighbours. And so Australian community has increasingly, Australia has increasingly moved from a country of we towards a nation of me. We've become a little bit less collectivist and a little bit more individualist. And this trend has, uh, if anything, accelerated over recent decades. Now another trend. If you look in the commercial sector, you can see productivity ebb and flow in the post-war era. Uh, it's very particularly uh, strong in the 1990s, uh, weakens a little in the 2000s, and in the decade of the 2010s, it falls into the doldrums. We had years in the 2010s when productivity actually went backwards. That is where Australian workers were producing less per hour than they had the year before. Productivity in the long run is the main driver of living standards. So when productivity stagnates, then living standards have to stagnate. A society can't continue to increase incomes over the long run unless it's increasing productivity. There's been a lot of head scratching about what's gone on with productivity and why we've had this terrible productivity decade. But there is some thought that maybe it has to do with the way in which work has been organised and the way in which technology has played into that. Now, let me offer an explanation that might link these two theories. In the period around 2007 to 2009, uh, the world underwent a substantial transformation as smartphones became ubiquitous. We saw the launch of the iPhone and the rapid rollout of Android-powered powered devices. Over this relatively short period, we saw the growth of uh, Twitter, uh, platforms like uh, Snapchat and Instagram, uh, and we saw the mass-scale rollout of Facebook, which had started as an elite service in 2004. And over the last decade, uh, those services have exploded such that the time that's being spent on online apps, uh, ranging from TikTok to Facebook, uh, now dominates, uh, other pre dominates television, uh, and even in the case of younger Australians, dominates streaming services. These technologies were designed by some of the most brilliant psychologists and computer programmers in the world, with one objective to hook their users, to get the maximum amount of time of your time spent gazing into these little addictive devices. They operate on a psychological principle called variable, variable interval reinforcement schedule, which essentially says that we are more likely to be glued to a device when it delivers an unpredictable reward than when it delivers a predictable reward. Uh, poker machines operate on the same principle. If they paid out steady, predictable amounts, they wouldn't be as exciting or as addictive as when the reward comes unpredictably. It's that little dopamine hit we get when we check the inbox to see whether an exciting message has come in, or when we check our uh, social media channels to see whether someone has liked or shared our posts. This technology has meant that more and more people are using these, uh, these technologies more and more often. Uh, that they're sucking a larger share of our time. And that's now beginning to show up in mental health statistics. If you look at the mental well-being of teenagers, it's plummeted over the course of the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Those in the room who are parents will know, know what, I'm, what I'm talking about. 
There's really only two conversations that seem to take place among parents in big Australian cities these days. What on earth is happening with house prices and how do we handle those devices? <laughs> and handling the devices is a significant challenge uh, for teams right now. Uh, we've seen an increase in the share of teams that say they are stressed. We've seen a significant rise in the share of teens expressing depression and in particular anxiety. We've seen an increase in the United States in self-harm and in, across most of the advanced world uh, in uh, youth suicide rates. These problems have become, been most exacerbated for girls rather than boys, which would be consistent with a technology that allows people to at scale damage their rivals' social networks. Uh, boys are more likely to settle disputes with violence, girls are more likely to do it using social networks, uh, and so, uh, as uh, uh, one scholar puts it, the impact on teen mental health is akin to, on, on girls, is akin to what you'd see with the boys if you suddenly slipped a knife into the pockets of every teenage boy. Uh, these, this damage is, is real and it's showing up right across social, social engagement. Uh, one of the uh, challenges that we need to deal, deal with now is how to manage these devices in the classrooms, which is one of the things, the debates we're seeing roiling schools, but also how to manage what they do with community life. Uh, smartphones are extraordinarily addictive. Uh, the temptation to spend time with them uh, is stronger, stronger than the uh, willpower of many of us. So it shouldn't be surprising that on the time use statistics, they're going through the roof. The scholar Cal Newport, on whose work I've drawn in preparing today's remarks, uh, says you can look at the social science research and you can see uh, some degree, perhaps, of, of uh, debate going on about the extent to which social media might have harmed teens. But he says you shouldn't just look at the causal channels and the timing. You should also look at what teens say about the role that devices and social media are playing in their mental well-being. Uh, he likens it to somebody who is stuck at the bottom of a hole calling out for help. Teens, in many cases, are talking about the damage that social media and devices are doing to their mental health. Uh, and the approach of coming along and saying, well, we're not so sure about the causal channel, he says is a bit like looking at somebody at the bottom of a deep hole and saying, well, statistically, most holes aren't that deep and mostly people don't get stuck at the bottom of holes. So I'm not sure whether you've really got a problem. Uh, the direct lived experience of many people uh, in dealing with these devices is real. And we've seen, too, the way in which that flows into workplaces. Uh, the thinking of, the, uh, of management theory uh, through the 1960s and 1970s was that we needed to free managers to work at their own pace and in their own way, which worked quite successfully through the 1970s, 1980s, and into the 1990s. And then came email. Most workplaces connected to email sometime in the 1990s, but the volume of email flooded workplaces through the 2000s and 2010s. It became less of a substitute for a fax machine, and clearly an email is a much more efficient way of communicating than a fax, than it did just a way of sharing another bit of information. Jobs that would previously have been performed in chunks 
uh, got broken down into little micro pieces. The, the job description for many of us in the room changed and so pretty much all of us can now accurately describe our job as answering hundreds of emails every day. Uh, we've become what Cal Newport calls uh, a constant multitasking packet switches. Uh, rerouting messages from one to another, often having jobs broken up in such a way that it's hard to focus on a task for any period of time. That breaking up of work then means that we find it more difficult to get deep work done. But that uh, work that might involve drafting a report, carefully considering the future of an organisation, planning out a new strategy, uh, working out how to deal with a difficult interpersonal dispute in the office. We, under, we underestimate the amount of time that it takes to move from one task to another. Uh, one study suggests that after being interrupted, it can take around 15 minutes for the typical person to get back on task. And yet we also know that the typical office worker checks email every six minutes. So in some sense, they may never get back on task during the course of the day. That Peter Drucker philosophy that we should let managers be managers and just uh, allow full autonomy worked fine until a distracting technology laid over the top of it. And now the challenge for many workplaces is to give employees not autonomy but the freedom from responding to their co-workers for a sufficient period to actually get some work done. The best examples of this come out of computer programming. Uh, the notion of agile pro programming has spawned an offshoot known as extreme programming, in which programmers are told that there will be a period in the, in the day, uh, four hours, six hours, in which they won't be expected to check email. And by the way, that includes Slack as well. They won't be interrupted in their work, their job is to write a really good piece of code. Sometimes this is done by having two programmers sit side by side at one machine, sharing a keyboard. With the notion that if you've got another person next to you and you're aiming to work together, it becomes socially awkward for you to go off and check your device. You're working together on a shared goal. Extreme programming turns out to be really exhausting. Some of the workplaces that have engaged in it find that if they can get six solid hours and have work out of somebody in a day, they're quite happy to let them go home after that. And they're discovering that six hours of real work in a day turns out to be far more work than many employees are currently getting done. So in terms of productivity, it may be that we need a shift in the workplace uh, which is almost as radical as Henry Ford's invention of the assembly line. Henry Ford, as you remember, took the idea of artisan production and flipped it around. People who thought the way to build a car was to build, bring the parts to the car. Henry Ford figured out that actually it was smarter to bring the car to the workers. And to change that radical might be required in order to get productivity going again. It might be that computerised technologies, which we once thought were going to be the source of massive productivity gains, 
have actually now become one of the biggest drags on productivity in the workplace. And the same challenge might be necessary when we think about rebuilding community. It's certainly true that you can identify Facebook groups which have acted to join up disparate communities. Uh, if you're trans living in a regional part of Australia, then joining a Facebook group of like-minded people might be an incredibly important source of community. But too often, checking your mentions can become a substitute from phoning a friend. Uh, too often, uh, engaging in a Twitter war can be a substitute for attending a local council meeting. Uh, too often, saying that you like, like a post can be a substitute for going for a walk from a friend. The sort of deep work that is required in the workplace to produce productivity has its analogy in the social sector too. The kind of deep work that actually builds interpersonal connections. It's very rare to be able to break down barriers across class or ethnicity or gender or region without good face-to-face -face interactions. And when we eschew those, and we think that we can do politics through Twitter or do community building through online petitions without the face-to-face -face interactions, then we lose something that makes the glue stick. We lose the ability to mobilise a society and to push back against these trends that I talked about at the outset. If we're to rebuild community in Australia, and my passion as Assistant Charities Minister is to work on rebuilding community, then we need to figure out how to do so in an era of technological distraction. We need to figure out how to provide opportunities for people to come together as we are today to work on common causes. Uh, in that, the area that I know best, politics, uh, there is a sense in which uh, politics has become a little bit uh, like uh, following a sport. You know, you turn up, you're, uh, you're at, the, uh, at the AFL, uh, you're cheering for your team, you're jeering at the other side, but at no point do you actually think that you're making a difference to the game. You're a spectator. You're having fun. And too much of uh, so-called political engagement has that character. People sitting on the sidelines, cheering or jeering, rather than actually going onto the field. If you care about climate change, then you can probably do, do, do a tiny little thing uh, by putting up a, a, a feisty Instagram post. But perhaps that time would be better spent going along to your local council meetings, asking that the developments in your area be six-star green rated rather than five-star green rated. Uh, taking an in-person interaction which brings you into, into a relationship with other humans in your area. So this is one of the big challenges I'm wrestling with. I'm sure all of you have, have felt the, uh, the challenge of making these technolo technologies work in your own lives. I love technology. I'm a, a, a happy adopter of many new innovations. But I do think that unless we use technology intentionally, then the, the new online technologies and social media could make us a less productive and less connected society. If we use them well, uh, if we do what Nick Terrell and I call cyber connecting, 
then we can become a happier, healthier, more productive, and more connected society. Thanks very much. Look forward to the conversation.